survivors felt like if this had been white children, the community wouldn't be the ones having to investigate their own genocide. That's Kimberly Murray, Canada's first independent special interlocutor for unmarked graves and burial sites associated with former residential schools. She is a proud member of the Kanasatage Mohawk Nation, and she's our guest today on the Akamemek Podcast. Tanse, and welcome back to the Akamemek Podcast. I'm your host, Chief Perry Belgard, the former National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, and it's great to be back with you all hosting this podcast again. And thanks to all of you for your patience during our hiatus and for being back here on the Akamemek Podcast with me again. Over the past year, I was able to confirm something I think we all know that's at heart for all of us. Whether talking to friends and family back home on Little Black Bear, or traveling across Turtle Island and or around the world, what I saw again and again is that we as people still have a strong desire to find places where we can engage in real dialogue, build bridges, and find solutions together. So here we are, all of us, we're back again on Akamemuk. And Akamemuk is a Plains Cree word for perseverance. Don't quit. In other words, let's keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, community leaders. And today, we're pleased to welcome Kim Murray to our podcast. Few people have worked as hard as she has over her career in the cause of truth and reconciliation. She was the executive director of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission from 2010 to 2015, and she was Ontario's first ever Assistant Deputy Attorney General for Aboriginal Justice. Before taking on her current role as Special Interlocutor, she was leading the search for unmarked graves at the Six Nations of the Grand River, working to recover the missing children and unmarked burial sites at the Mohawk Institute, which was Canada's oldest residential school. Kim Murray, a very heartfelt and big welcome to the Akamemuk Podcast. Sego, Perry. Thank you for having me. So, Kim, in your new role, what's... What does it allow you to do? What's its focus? So to our listeners, explain what is a special interlocutor? What is that? Yeah, it's a really good question because lots of people don't know what the definition of interlocutor is. And uh, I often joke that a lot of people can't even say the word. <laughs> um, but it just like Canada to put a strange title on a job. Um, but essentially, my role is to continue the conversation with communities that are doing this sacred work of recovery, uh, looking for the unmarked burials and the missing children. Um, and I, like uh, every role, uh, I have things that I can do and things that I can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of my two-year mandate, I have to uh, make some recommendations to the government of Canada to create a new legal framework uh, that will protect the grounds where the children uh, are buried. And I know um, everyone knows that uh, many, many communities are, are doing this work. Um, some are just starting and others have been searching for quite a long time to find the children that uh, never made it home from Indian residential school. Um, so, you know, essentially, it's really important to me that I um, 
try and take down some of the barriers that communities are facing uh, in trying to get this work done. Uh, and uh, so I'm, you know, out there meeting with people, talking to mm-hmm. leadership, survivors, uh, and the teams that are doing the work on the ground to find out how I can help. Um, and it's really important to me that I don't get in the way that I'm there to help. Mm-hmm. So you've got a two-year mandate, and at the end of that two years... You're going to come up with some recommendations to the Crown, to government, regarding the, a new legal framework to protect the grounds uh, of the schools that you visited. So that's a big job because there's over 130 plus uh, residential schools across Canada. I'm going to ask, like, wh- what your priorities, your goals, your focus, like, where do you begin with that monumental task? Yeah, it is a massive task because um, people. Uh, probably know, or if they don't know, we'll learn now that um, we don't have a federal legislation that protects the grounds. Um, So other uh, countries uh, have uh, national legislation to protect burial grounds of Indigenous people, and we don't have that in Canada. So what we do have is a mix and a mess of different legislations by the provinces and the territories Mm -hmm. um, that all don't speak to each other and make it very difficult for access to land, uh, to protect the land. Um, And so... Um, you know, at the end of the day, it is the hope that there'll be some type of national response where the grounds can be protected, uh, that the grounds could be uh, in the control of First Nations, Métis and Inuit, um, because those are those their ancestors that are uh, buried there. Um, so, you know, my priority is to... Um, figure out this quagmire of legislation and Mm -hmm. really pull out some best practices to make the recommendations for this new legal framework. Um, Perry, my um, mandate actually tells me that I'm to incorporate Indigenous law and I'm also to look at how the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People can apply to this new legal framework. So those are two really important components uh, of the mandate. Um, And so there's, you know, as you can appreciate, there's Indigenous laws and protocols and customs uh, among our nations that uh, may be similar in some regards and mm-hmm. not similar in others. And so how do we incorporate those different practices and um Uh, protocols in a national framework and uh, it's a big task and will be a a, you know require lots of consultation and uh, discussions with communities so we're planning on uh, holding a number of gatherings over the next two years to bring people together uh, to have these important conversations about what it could look like. That's important work and those are two key areas indigenous law incorporating indigenous law and as well, the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And I know um, before it became law, it was Bill C-15, and there was a two-year action plan for the implementation of the UN Declaration. So maybe the work that you're doing could be part of that action plan as well. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, Canada has told me as they're doing their two-year action plan, uh, the action plan for the new Declaration Act, they actually have a space, they're holding space for me and the work that we're we're completing. Um, And uh, so we're hoping we'll be able to feed into uh, that 
that action plan. I mean, there are numerous articles that of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People that apply uh, to this sacred work of protecting the lands um, of uh, the children. So it's my hope that uh, those provisions will be operationalized in Canada uh, and uh, we won't be having this conversation in 10 years from now and, and that mm. these these um, sacred ancestors will be protected. Yeah, no, that's a, again, it's sacred work, it's important work and, and I know uh, everybody across Canada uh, was woken up and I've always said this is that our, it's, it's like our ancestors look after us and they wake us up. And so at Kamloops, with the, the, the discovery of the 215 unmarked graves at Camp, the former uh, residential school at Kamloops, and plus over 700-plus grave sites at Kawasis in Maryvale, do you remember your reaction to the news when those discoveries started happening? Do you, like, how did it impact Kim Murray when, you, wow, this is happening now, and it's, you know, how did you feel? How did you react to that? Um, I probably had mixed feelings like everybody did. Um, obviously, I was uh, deeply saddened and cried uh, along with all my colleagues um, um, at the Indigenous Justice Division uh, where I was working at the time, um, you know, and grieved for, for those children. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also was you know, I wasn't surprised uh, because I had worked at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and I had worked on the missing children in unmarked burial volume uh, in uh, looking at the deaths of children that died um, in these horrible places. Um, and then I also had like extreme anger. Um, I was angry that, you know, the calls to action of the TRC uh, came out in 2015 mm-hmm. and here we are in 2021 and very little work had proceeded and followed the TRC on the calls to action 71 through 76. Little had been done by the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation to further the work uh, that the TRC had started. Um, and communities continued to not have access to the information that they require uh, to do this work. So, you know, so it was lots of different emotions, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, overwhelmingly, you know, sadness, sadness mm-hmm. for the families, the community, um, and for those, those children. Um, so it was, it was hard. It continues to be hard. It, it's hard work. I've heard a lot of some of the survivors say that um, we should quit, stop calling them residential schools because schools don't have burial sites. You know, they're institutions, and I've heard yeah. that said. So it was hugely impactful, no question, the discovery. And you've always been working on truth and reconciliation and working on the TRC calls to action. And you were, before becoming the special interlocutor, you were a firsthand experience working at the Mohawk Institute, you know, at yeah. the, that institution. Um, tell us some of that about some of that work. What were your what were you think? Tell us about your days or weeks when month that you were there. Just our listeners yeah. get a handle on what's involved. I'm, I think you know. It just even before I started that work, it was interesting because I was working with the province of Ontario, as you said, you know, as the assistant deputy attorney general, 
And when Tkemloops happened, uh, obviously the province was having conversations about what to do and how to respond. And I was actually being silenced by the province. I was actually told by Indigenous Affairs that I wasn't allowed to speak to any communities because I had people calling me. Uh, even Tkemloops had called me mm-hmm. uh, and people around Ontario because they had known of the work I had done at the TRC. And I was being instructed by the province of Ontario, mm. that I could not speak to our people, that it all had to go through Indigenous Affairs Ontario and the people in that department. Yep. And so, you know, right then I was like, what What the hell? Like, of course mm-hmm. I'm going to speak to people if they call me and ask me for information that the TRC did and what we did and what's available. And um, so I disobeyed what I was told Thank goodness. <laughs> to do. <laughs> Because you're a strong uh, supporter and ally and <laughs> loads of information. Yeah. So uh, Six Nations had been calling me, uh, Chief and Council uh, were calling me and asking me, you know, where do we find this? How, what's this? And so I was like pinpointing in the TRC report all the information they need to know uh, to think about how to access their records. Um, and so when they were working with the survivors, uh, they just and they came to the decision that they wanted to create a survivor secretariat. Um, and, uh, because I had been helping them, uh, with finding records and things like that, they just came in and approached me and asked me if I would just come on and (laughs) set up the secretariat for them. Um, and so, uh, thankfully the province, uh, uh, granted me a leave to go do that work, uh, for the survivor secretariat. So I, um, you know, you asked me, what did my day look like? Uh, <laughs> you know, every day, it was uh, a busy, busy time uh, meeting with the survivors weekly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a core group of survivors at Six Nations that have been um, having these conversations for a long time. And uh, they had decided that they wanted to create a police task force. Um, so we had a number of things we had to do around the police task force. And you know, for the survivors and community members were often asking, well, why would you bring the police in? You know, the police were part of the problem. They apprehended the children. Um, you know, there's not a good relationship uh, with many in the community and the Ontario Provincial Police. But the survivors felt like if this had been white children, uh, the community wouldn't be the ones having to sort of investigate their own genocide. And Police would be brought in, they would be looking. Um, so, but to respond to this sort of mistrust of the police, um, it was decided that there would be this multi jurisdictional task force. And um, the um, Six Nations Police Service, which uh, are the only police service involved in the task force that had nothing to do with residential school, because as, as you know, they didn't exist mm-hmm. during residential school. Um, so it was the Six Nations Police, the Brantford Police, City Police, and the Ontario Provincial Police came together to create a task force. Um, but we wanted to uh, have some oversight of that task force. So um, uh, an Indigenous Human Rights Monitor was assigned to the task force, uh, Dr. Beverly Jacobs, and her role is to make sure that the task force complies with the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, complies with human rights law. Um, and then we uh, uh, assigned cultural monitors on the on the task force as well. And um, 
it was important that there be a Hoshoni monitor and an Anishinaabe monitor because, as everybody knows, kids came from all over to the all different over. residential schools. Um, and many, many of the children at the mush hole, taken to the mush hole, came from Anishinaabe communities um, as far north as Anishinaabe Aski Nation territory. Um, so, you know, early days, it was about getting that task force together, training them. We did a lot of cultural competency training, how to talk to survivors, um, educating them on the mush hole um, Mm -hmm. and the history of the mush hole. Um, Maybe just before, so our listeners, uh, that the mush hole, that's what people refer to the the residential school at at the Mohawk Institute there. That's what all the survivors, that's what they refer to it as. Just want to, just so to be clear, I've heard that term so many times. They called it the uh, mush hole. Yeah, and uh, so the Mohawk Institute, as you said, was the uh, is was the longest operating Indian residential school in Canada, uh, in Brantford, Ontario, and the kids uh, called it the mush hole because of the porridge that they received and the food that they received was mush, mm-hmm. um, and so it, it's known widely as the mush hole, um, yeah. as you said. Um, but the other thing that the, you know, that the survivors did at uh, Six Nations, which is quite unique, you know, they, they're the only one that has this police task force in Canada that I'm aware of. Um, there is another one being developed, uh, but I, I'll, I'll share that for another podcast. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, they uh, also, uh, I think, um, uh, approached the ground search of the mush hole. Um, there's 600 acres that they're searching. That's massive wow. territory. That's uh, and, um, you know, early days we had to get all the aerial maps, the aerial photographs, uh, the maps of the territory, uh, understanding where the school used to be. Uh, there was a number of schools on the property, three to be exact, uh, and just sort of understanding the history of those lands. Uh, but what we did is we purchased our own ground penetrating radar machines. So Mm. Six Nations has three ground penetrating radar machines. Um, And then we trained community members how to work the machines. Um, So we didn't go like some of the other communities where uh, we brought in outside people to do the ground search. We actually, um, it was all Six Nations people, uh, people from the territory. we even created a summer program for summer students, uh, university students, and uh, they worked. Uh, they were trained and worked all summer uh, operating the machines. Um, you know, that's uh, really important to understand how to work the machine, how to make the put the antenna at the right level, depending on the ground, um, and then that data. Um, that was collected needs to be analyzed by the experts uh, and. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so, so few experts uh, in Canada. We really need to get our people trained in this area. Uh, there's a massive backlog of data being analyzed. Uh, and, you know, it's great that we have these machines going every day, uh, but it's not, you know, it's just sitting in, in a database waiting to be analyzed by mm-hmm. people that can tell us what, what we're seeing. Um, so, you know, coordinating those people on the ground, you asked, like, Going back to the question, what my days looked like it was making sure those machines were operating, uh, making sure that the police t- task force was not um, doing things they shouldn't be doing, and sometimes they did. <laughs> so there was mm-hmm. a lot of 
difficult conversations that were happening. Um, and then, uh, importantly, collecting the records, collecting the records. Mm-hmm. There um, are records all over, all over Canada that communities can't access. I mean, I think it's, you know, the, 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 the whole process of collecting records, doing the grounds, you know, planning for the ground search, doing the ground search, collecting the data, analyzing the data, confirming the anomalies or the reflections, and then what next? And that's the difficult conversation that many communities are actually having right now. Do we exhume the, the, do, do we do we do exhumations excavations and then how do we identify those remains if that's the that's the decision that communities are making and who does that work um, you know this issue of DNA testing is a very very sensitive uh, decision that communities need to make um, and you know some are at that dis- that stage right now of having those conversations and it's not just for the the, the the community where the old institution was located on, it's all those other nations that had mm-hmm. their children there because you can appreciate that it's very likely that the children that are buried on these territories are from, not from the territory because right. that was the policy that the government and the churches had. They would not pay to return the children's remains home. So uh, if anyone's buried on these grounds, it's high, like, high probability that they're from outside the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that sort of nation-to-nation dialogue and conversation that needs to happen and who makes those decisions and how do we verify who the child is, um, you know, it, it'll, it, it, it'll be up to the community members and the families and the survivors whether these decisions will be made uh, to do exhumation. So part of the work I'm doing is to have something ready and some options available for communities if they decide to go that route. Mm-hmm. Um, who's going to do the DNA? Not going to be the RCMP. We don't want our DNA in an RCMP database do we Mm -hmm. i mean Mm -hmm. i I certainly wouldn't want my dna in the rcmp database um so we're looking at some international entities and organizations and just think wouldn't it be great if we could have a first nation um laboratory with Mm -hmm. first nations create our own institutions as part of self-determination self-government create our own institutions yeah, and there's that- a uh, there's an organization in Guatemala that we had at our uh, gathering in Edmonton who um, has worked with many indigenous nations uh, around the work of recovery and identifying uh, uh, people in mass graves and you know willing to come up and train our people and help us create our own uh, entities. So um, that's sort of the forward looking work. And as you said, Perry, it's it's not something that's going to be done in one year. Two years, no, this is or this three is, years. This is a a, a long term process because even when you start bringing up the the, the ball, if that's decided, uh, there's ceremony. There's different protocols. Different nations, different tribes have different ceremonies for doing that, or even not doing it. Like because some don't allow it. Like so, there's all these sensitivities that will come to bear. And so this is sacred work. It's spiritual work, and it has to be done properly with the the survivors and the elders and knowledge keepers so that things go in in a good way going forward. Absolutely. That's lots. Wow. Like, so everything we just talked about, 
this this question, I want to ask about, well, what are some of the challenges? We just kind of went through that, but I'm going to ask it. But in your mind, what are some of the challenges going forward with all of this work? What are some of the things that, oh my goodness, this is a big headache. This is something we got to look at. We got to, what are some of the things in your mind? There's quite a few. <laughs> uh, um, you know, probably one of the biggest uh challenges and barriers that we're facing uh, is in relation to accessing the land. Um, you, As you know, Canada expropriated a lot of land to create these institutions and put these buildings on, on lands. When they closed, they didn't necessarily give the land back to the First Nations communities. Um, some of the lands are First Nations lands. Some of the lands are provincial crown lands, some are mm-hmm. federal crown lands, and then there are those that are privately owned. Mm-hmm. And uh, communities having to beg uh, permission to go on the lands, to do the proper searches that are required um, is, you know, is very problematic mm-hmm. uh, and a real barrier to reconciliation. You know, the TRC called mm-hmm. on everyone everybody to participate in reconciliation. And I, for the life of me, do not understand how a landowner uh, could and would allow development to happen or, you know, uh, not permit communities to go on and search for their children. Um, You know, I wouldn't want to build a swimming pool on top of a burial ground of children. I don't know who would. Uh, But there are instances across Canada right now where um, private landowners are refusing to allow searches to take place. So this is the problem with our laws. Mm -hmm. This is a problem uh, that we need to address. And, of course, I'm so fearful about what could happen, you know, what kind of direct action might take place. And we don't want to be in that kind of situation. So, you know, I encourage all landowners to uh, reach out to their neighbors and – facilitate access build a relationship we've always talked about you know sit down and talk have those tough dialogue like how would you feel if this was your great-grandchildren you know that you're looking for and and you know to try to get them uh sensitized or educated and aware of this huge issue because the privately held land um again like yeah they've got to sit down and talk to the first nations people or people are affected by this yeah, and it's, um, you know, and so my office is uh, trying to um, facilitate some of those conversations and assist communities with uh, having the, the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it, we're at a time now when a, when we can't keep denying that this, there is a likelihood that there's burials on these grounds. When mm-hmm. a community comes forward and says, we think there are burials on this property, we can't stop like pretending, oh, you're crazy. That's not possible, right? Like we have proven time and time and time mm-hmm. again that these are true, that there are burials. Exactly. And, and what's so, the harm in looking? What's the harm in checking? What harm is there? There's not Exactly. Especially if it's a, a gra- territory that you can use ground penetrating radar because it's mm-hmm. it's not intrusive, mm-hmm. right? You're It looks like a lawnmower and you're pushing it over the ground. I mean, not all ground can ground penetrating radar can be used on but you know if it can it's an easy solution uh let the search happen and then off we go yeah 
So accessing the land is a, one of the challenges. Are there other things that come to mind in terms of other challenges with this work? Um, yeah, there's, I mean, uh, access to records, mm-hmm. uh, collection of records. Uh, and everyone has seen it uh, in the news and in the media. Um, so, you know, I, I try I try and uh, educate people about the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. And as mm-hmm. you know, only Canada and the churches were required to provide records to the TRC. Mm-hmm. Five million records were collected, and they're now at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. All the entities didn't provide all their records. So there's still records out there that need to be collected from the parties to the settlement agreement. Mm-hmm. But the provinces and territories have records. Universities have records. Municipal governments have records. Municipal police services have records. Private citizens have records. Um, you know, it's really important that everybody does their job in reconciliation. And you need to look in your own archives mm-hmm. and in your own boxes in your basement. <laughs> and if you have those records, provide them. Provide mm-hmm. them to the National Center. Provide them to the community that's requesting it. Um, and, you know, the records are so important because if we can find records to help communities um, um, identify who the children are, uh, that would be the least intrusive way, right? Like mm-hmm. we don't want to be cutting bones and, and, and doing the DNA testing, you know, for, for, it would be more comforting to, to, to rely on records, um, you know, our records first approach, uh, to finding the burial grounds, to identifying the children that are in those burial grounds. Um, uh, it would just make it a lot easier, uh, and those really difficult decisions won't have to be made mm. uh, that communities are facing right now. Um, but it's also really important. F- the records are so important for the truth part mm-hmm. of truth and reconciliation uh, and for making sure this never happens again. So, you know, let's get all the records. And as you know, there's records outside of Canada. <laughs> No, uh, yeah, you, you know the, the, the Vatican. Vatican. The Vatican has a lot. Yeah, so. and uh, many of the uh, there are some institutions that were operated by the Anglican Church. Uh, uh, so there's um, records over in Europe in relation to those schools. There's the New England Company in England, which operated the Mohawk Institute, um, and those are records that weren't produced to the TRC uh, oh, wow. by the entities. So. so those- um, and then I guess, um, you know, uh, proper supports for communities for mental mm-hmm. health uh, and wellness is really uh, seems to be a problem as well that's happening across the country. Um, many of the teams doing the work have said they've been denied funding to have uh, health supports on their on their team. Uh, mm-hmm. There seems to be a bit of a disconnect between the departments <laughs> about who funds what, and you know, communities having to go to different. You you know the old game. You got to go to different. You go to ISC or you go to Crown Indigenous Relations or you go to the Department of Justice. You go to Health. Who do you go to? Are do you, that's to the federal government department. What about the provinces? Do they have a role here too to provide some support? So yeah, it's the old ping pong ball: department to department, government to government. 
Yeah, it so that that's like that's I, I think the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry called it the sort of jurisdictional neglect mm-hmm. uh, that's happening, and that that's like everything is happening in this area as well. Um, and then there's some limit, there's some restrictions and limitations that are being placed on communities, like oh, you can't use the funding to hire lawyers. Well, you know, I'm a lawyer. You, it's a good thing I'm a lawyer because the work I had to do at the mush hole uh, when I was setting up the secretariat was majority was legal work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like entering into memorandums of agreement. I was entering into uh, legal contracts and purchasing agreements and all like really, you know, data sovereignty type of documents, like who has ownership control over things. Uh, you know, communities should be allowed to have legal advice when they're doing this work. Um, and th- that's a restriction that Canada has. Uh, well, and some of the provinces. I, I'm just kind of smiling here because, Jesus, wasn't that in the Indian Act right up until 1951 <laughs> that it was illegal for Indians to have access to legal counsel? And it, now it seems like they're reliving that again. And that, that's crazy. That should not be as part of the contribution agreement or funding agreement with First Nations when they, they say, oh, this money is for this A, B, and C. And it can't, you, oh, by the way, you can't hire a lawyer. Well, that doesn't make sense. So. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They've just taken the Indian Act provisions and put it in the terms and conditions of our contracts. Wow. Well, that yeah. that that's those are a lot of challenges, no question. But again, proper advocacy, proper calls, proper pushing the right buttons, we can get some of these things changed around. So that's important. You know, that's a those are a lot of challenges in your new role. You know, and so I've said before, this is very important work. This is spiritual work. This is sacred work you're embarking on, and. Now, when you say this is the independent interlocutor, uh, is your role independent? Is it totally independent? Um, how, what's your governance structure like? What, like, um, I would say that in the law, it's not independent <laughs> uh, because I am an OIC appointment, and you know the government of Canada could just take it away. Um, I have all these requirements on me to follow the federal government rules around procurement, around hiring, you know, so that there's no independence there. It's like follow the government. Uh, we've been pushing really hard against, against, um, uh, against Canada and the rules, you know, like I just held a gathering in uh, Alberta mm-hmm. in Edmonton and, you know, right off the bat well why are you holding it there you know you got to do proper procurements and i'm like we don't have time to to procurement that way (laughs) like i got a two-year mandate and Mm -hmm. if i go through the process you want that's going to eat up four months i like i'm holding a gathering next month and this is how this is where we're holding it um and you know and they're like well you can't spend that much money on food i'm like I am pe- I am feeding people mm-hmm. <laughs> at the gathering. Which you department know? comes at you with those questions? Which is it? Is oh, is all it of them, but is it's it DOJ it's, or it's DOJ. DOJ. So the Department of Justice um, is your main watchdog monitor kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, but in fairness to them, you know, they're learning, and uh, yeah. uh, and I think my job as the executive director of the TRC, because if you remember, it was set up as a department. And we had the same challenges. And uh, the one thing I learned was there's a workaround for every rule. <laughs> and, uh, you know, thank you for your advice. I'm not taking it. And this is the reason why. And just making sure we paper those uh, decisions that we make. Um, so, but the other thing um, 
you know, I think, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, what's that, what's that saying? Shrinking violet, right? Like I take my independence very seriously, Mm -hmm. uh, and I will be independent. I will act independently and they can do whatever they want to do to try and make me not independent. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm not afraid of them. Like I, Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid of them. Um, and one of the things I did recently, uh, just to sort of assert my independence is I actually sought, um, standing in a court case in Quebec, um, as the independent special interlocutor. So, uh, mm-hmm. I was granted intervener status and Canada is involved in that case. Um, so, you know, I, I, um, you know, heard from Canada saying, well, clearly you're independent, Kim. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> Um, so, but, you know, in that, that case, it was, uh, it's a, it's a, one of those situations where, uh, you know, folks are denying that there could be burials on a ground and the community, there's community people, um, wanting to do a search. So I've intervened as a friend of the court to, uh, explain to the court that there is reality here. There is mm-hmm. a likelihood, a probability that there are burials on these grounds, and that, you know, quite frankly, that's something Canada should be saying. Uh, the fact that I have to intervene and say that while Canada's part of the case, um, you know, is disturbing to me. I'll definitely be writing about it <laughs> in my report. You have a two-year mandate. It sounds like there's a lot more work. It's not going to be done in two years. So this is going to be ongoing work. And, you know, I, I, I asked you about the, the uh, independence. And it seems like Department of Justice still has their controlling and their monitoring and their terms and conditions of their contribution agreements. But there's no question you're pushing back and you're, you're bringing some changes. And that's a really good thing. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add in, in that respect in terms of relationship with the Crown in that sense? Um, yeah. So the mandate um, uh, uh, requires me to meet with Minister Lametti after three months. And so mm-hmm. I'm at my three-month mark now. So we're actually meeting uh, in November. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will have this uh, preliminary conversation with him about how things are going uh, and uh, how how I'm going to meet my mandate. Um, so I've, uh, I've asserted my <laughs> independence in, in that regard too, because I'm not meeting with him in his territory. I'm making him come to a site mm-hmm. uh, of one of the residential schools and me and having community witness the meeting, uh, yeah. which I think is really important. Uh, I don't want to have this behind closed door meeting with him without, uh, I, I want community to be involved. Um, so that's in the works uh, for early November. Um, but um, yeah, it's, you know, I have a report that's due uh, after one year and then a final report in two years. And I have to put some thought, Perry, to, mm-hmm. as you said, this work is going to continue. Like it's not going to be done in two years. And so where will the role of the things that the special interlocutors office has been doing to help communities get records and facilitate those conversations? Could that be with the new council for reconciliation? You know, could that be built into the new council for reconciliation? That's hopefully going to be created in the next two years. Um, I got to think about, you know, how to Make sure that um, there's someone there that can continue to assist communities in this regard, because some of the communities won't even have started yet. And mm-hmm. um, there's two things I, I want to mention about my mandate. Yeah, 
Uh, one is it includes more than Indian residential schools. It includes other sites. So what are those other sites? Uh, I'm learning, and most people know about the Indian hospitals. I was born Your at kids... the Fort Capel Indian Hospital in Fort Capel, Saskatchewan. Yes, Indian yes. hospitals, TB centers. TB uh... centers. Other hospitals, mm -hmm. because there weren't Indian hospitals everywhere, and so children from residential schools were taken to other hospitals, mental health institutions, mm -hmm. um, and reformatories. So when the kids ran away from the residential schools and got apprehended and brought back and then ran away again, they would get charged, and the provinces would prosecute them, and then they would be taken to provincial reform reformatories. So I recently went with the chief coroner of Ontario and a survivor to the grounds of St. Joseph's here in uh, Alfred, Ontario. Mm -hmm. uh, and those grounds are going to be searched because uh, there's information to suggest that there are children buried on those grounds. Oh, wow. Um, so it's not, so it's not just 130 plus residential school sites. Now there's more institution sites that have to be uh, explored and visited and, 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 sought after for potential grave sites, unmarked sites. Wow. Yeah. And, and you know, and that, that's coming, that truth is coming out through the records. You know, as I go and I look at the records, I see where the kids are being sent all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and then the other thing uh, I, I wanted to mention too about the mandate, which um, I was really, uh, I don't want to say happy because there's nothing happy about anything I'm doing, but um, it was really important to see my mandate that it includes conversations about land back. You know, when mm -hmm. at the beginning we talked about how the lands were expropriated uh, and they're often in now in private land uh, with private landowners. Um, but my mandate includes making recommendations about land back. And so really trying to understand the landscape of who owns what lands under, you know, the colonial land ownership mm -hmm. systems? Um, and how can we ensure that we get these lands back into uh, control of First Nations people? Um, and so, you know, that's um, uh, that's a big part of uh, the role that I have and the recommendations I'll be making on this new legal framework. No, that's huge because land back you know, like when you start talking about reconciliation in Canada, that's the big issue. Like I, I made the point at some point uh, previously that it shouldn't be land claims. Maybe it should be called land restoration instead of specific claims and comprehensive claims. Just call it land restoration or something, you know, that because a lot of these uh, instances, land was never surrendered um, you know, or given up. And so uh, we've used the word uh, assumed crown sovereignty, uh, assumed crown jurisdiction. And uh, because, again, um, there's always the talk about the doctrine of discovery and the doctrine of terra nullius. Well, now it's in, in the UN Declaration as an illegal racist doctrine. It's in Canadian law. So we've got to keep building upon that. So I'm really glad to hear you talk and say that in your report, like in terms of the land back piece, because some of these lands are privately ownership, you know, or, or provincial crown lands, federal crown lands. So that whole issue is, is a big thing to, to embrace and, and to give life to the word reconciliation, you know. So um, that's that's a key piece of your work. So thank you for that work. You know, Kim, you've outlined so much for us. So the, the people listening on our Akamemek podcast, there's so much involved with this special interlocutor and it's sacred work. It, it's hard work. It's spiritual work. I'm going to ask you, like, like in terms of everything that First Nations people, First 
uh, across Turtle Island have endured in the last uh, 500 plus years of, you know, of talked about civilize, assimilate, terminate, you know, indigenous peoples, you know, and, and the, the genocide of the residential schools. What, what gives you hope? Oh, you know, lots of things give me hope, Perry. Um, I, you know, one of the things I'll always, always remember, uh, you know, when I worked at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I had the great honor of like hearing people and survivors uh, share their truths, but also share their hope, right? And um, there was uh, one survivor I just, I remember so clearly, like it was yesterday, Miss um, uh, Knockwood uh, stood up uh, at the TRC hearing in Halifax and she said, uh, my happiness is my revenge. You know, my happiness is my revenge. And I and I just remember the whole room just like exploded with applause and stood up. And and I thought, you know, that's just so like that gives me hope knowing that the resilience of our community members mm-hmm. and, you know, how they're thriving uh, and uh, can be happy, you know, and that their happiness is their revenge. Like you failed. You know, it's like that putting that middle finger up (laughs) (laughs) to to Canada and the churches, right? And, uh, you know, but there are so many more, you know, like Mr. Uh, Fontaine, when, you know, he said, I'm free, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm free. And, um, you know, I was at ceremony on Saturday and back uh, in Montreal uh, Mm -hmm. with um, some uh, really uh, important Mohawk uh, spiritual leaders. And uh, we talked about that notion of freedom uh, and being free. And uh, so that gives me hope, you know, Mm -hmm. that gives me hope. Um, And just even going to those ceremonies, right. That, that gives, gives us hope too, uh, revitalizing that. And when listening to our language, uh, hearing my daughter who's like fluent now uh in Ojibwe learning her father's language uh one day she will she will speak Mohawk too uh that gives me hope you know that that gives me so much hope um there's there's a lot to be there's a lot that's 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 a lot and what a what a great way to conclude our dialogue uh Kim and uh you know the resilience of our people you know, my happiness is my revenge, and uh, keeping uh, our ceremonies and our languages alive, even though they were, they were tried to, to be exterminated. That's that's a strong message, and uh, I want to thank you for being on the Akamemik podcast. But thank you so much for accepting and doing the work you're doing on this very important sacred work, spiritual work. Uh, I want to lift you up and, and your team up, and uh, this is going to help all of our nations right across Turtle Island. Uh, on that road and path to reconciliation. Now way, now way. So, thanks so much again, Kim Murray, for being on the Akamemik podcast. And Kinanaskom Tinawao, a big thank you to all of our listeners. And if you like this podcast, please rate and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or where you listen. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can find me on social media by searching at Perry Belgard. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. So until next time, Kenaskum Tenawa, Egoze. Take care. <laughs>